Good morning again, Calvary Bible Church. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. After speaking about those who will be judged, Paul kind of gives the flip side of this coin. He says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for blessing us with just another beautiful day and just the opportunity to come together as a church body, a church family, to bring worship to you and your son. I pray now, Lord, for the teaching of your word. That, of course, it would be profitable, that your word would not ever return void, as we see in the scriptures. That, Lord, your word would fall upon active, listening hearts and minds. And that, Lord, as always, we would seek to understand how to apply it to our lives. And we do pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, going through 2 Thessalonians, and especially this section here that we have been in, in chapter 2, we have been learning several things about end times events, including the day of the Lord. We've talked a lot about the man of lawlessness, the apostasy, the restrainer, and then last week, some of the consequences for those in that future day who will not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. These will be followers of the man of lawlessness because he will wickedly deceive them. And then, of course, the Lord will bring upon them a deluding influence to keep them believing what is false and undergo eternal destruction at the return of Christ. That's some bad news. In fact, that's some, that's some really bad, bad news. But what we see in our text this morning is some really good news. You ready for some good news for a while? Let's have some good, good news. And of course, the good news comes here in our verses 13 to 15, where Paul talks about this, this other kind of people, the kind of people that make up the Thessalonians. The church at Thessalonica, the church at Thessalonica, I'm like Thessalonian, Thessalonica, Thessalonians, blah. It's a group of folks that, uh, that Paul thanks God for here at our text. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if uh, you picked up on this, but verses 13 to 15 are just so very rich with the doctrine of salvation, that grand and glorious life-giving doctrine of salvation. Things like we have here being chosen of God, sanctification by the Holy Spirit, faith in the truth, being called through the gospel, even glorification, and of course, standing firm and persevering. 
And so what I thought we would do here is just kind of slow things down in this section for the next eight to nine weeks even and and do kind of a, a, a series within a series on the sovereignty of God and how the sovereignty of God relates to salvation and especially the authority and control God exercises in his plan of saving sinners and so to do so, we're, we're going to use this passage, verses 13 to 15 of chapter 2, as kind of a, a jumping off point, a jumping off point to explore just some of the many incredible aspects of this doctrine of salvation and the other awesome doctrines that will come out of it. <clears throat> Excuse me for one second, I'm going to need to sip of water. Kind of makes me think of a... Russian nesting dolls. When I went on my first missions trip through Calvary Bible Church, we went to Samara, Russia. And of course, that's one of the popular things to bring back. And I brought my, my daughter back a set of Russian nesting dolls. And so it's the little dolls where you pop off the top and there's another one. And then you open that one up and there's another one. You open that one up and there's another one and another one and another one. And, and all the dolls are beautiful you know, just on their own, but then you see them all together and it's really cool. And you can kind of go down from the biggest to the smallest there. <clears throat> and it's, it's kind of that way with these doctrines. You, you kind of, you know, take off the top of the doctrine of salvation. And there's another doctrine. You pop that and there's another doctrine and there's another doctrine and there's another doctrine. And they're all incredible and they're all beautiful on their own. But then when you see them in totality too, it just paints this really incredible picture. You're even more amazed and as beautiful and amazing as the sovereignty of God in salvation is, it will also bring to surface many questions. Many questions and even sometimes difficulties. It's kind of like going through a maze. Or maybe as a kid you like to do maze puzzles. And you always know that there's an entrance and you always know there's an exit. But man, kind of working your way through it can be tough. Or maybe you've, you've been in one of those life-size uh, human mazes, like in a cornfield. We had one up in Reading that we would go to in the fall. And, and you're going through the, the corn maze and trying to find your way. And it's a lot of fun while you do it, but yet it can be frustrating as well. I remember at one point they had this platform, and you could stand on the platform and actually look out and see the whole maze from up above. Mazes can be fun, but yes, they can also be frustrating. <clears throat> And as I said, you can't study this doctrine without talking about another, uh, a number of other doctrines, such as the sinfulness of man, also known as his total depravity. How it is a person, because of his total depravity, could even become saved. And we'll also need to understand things like predestination and election and foreknowledge. And there will be questions to address, such as, well, did God choose me? Or did I choose God? And when? When did this all happen? Who did Christ die for? Did he die for the whole world? Or did he die for the elect? And we need to understand the nature of God's will versus our human will. Are the two even compatible? Do we have a choice in our salvation or not? In other words, can we resist God can we lose our salvation? Why or why not? How can we know 100% for certain that we are saved? <clears throat> so these are just some of the questions, and I'm sure many others will come up. 
over the next eight to nine weeks. It's also like kind of playing the game of connect the dots, right? You, you, you start out and, and connect the dots with your first dot and you have no idea what the picture is and it takes you to the next dot and the next dot and the next dot and slowly but surely you start to get a picture of of what it is that you are drawing. And it's kind of the same thing in our study. We'll go from one dot to the next to the next. And at times it might not be real clear yet what the picture is going to be. But then it starts to come alive and manifest itself. And, we, and, and it becomes clearer to us. And again, we're kind of amazed. We're amazed because uh, on one hand it's, it's so intricate and so many lines. But then we pull back and we see... The finished picture and it's and it's glorious it's glorious so for today we have to go back to the beginning i love the musical the sound of music i was in it as a kid several times i directed it um, with the some adults at our community theater and and there's a song that maria sings to the children uh she's and it, it has these words it says let's start at the very beginning a very good place to start when you read, you begin with A, B, C. And when you sing, you begin with, anyone know? Do, re, mi. There you go. Well, when you study God's sovereignty and salvation, you begin with M-A-N. Man. And an anthropology lesson. Now, anthropology it comes from two Greek words. Anthropos, which means man, and ology, which means the study of. So, yes, we are going to study Man. And of course, when we say man, we mean it in that general sense of people, human beings, both men and women. And the doctrine, again, that we will be studying today is this doctrine of total depravity. Or as John MacArthur has called it, and I like this, he says, calls it the doctrine of absolute inability. And the fact that man is wholly, totally, completely depraved which means that he is fully corrupt wholly perverted altogether evil and therefore has the absolute inability to come to god on his own or to save himself as hard as he might try on may 10th 1996 Rob Hall, an experienced mountain climber and guide who had just summited Mount Everest for his fifth time, was trying to help other clients reach the top when a blizzard struck unexpectedly at 5 p.m. On the mountain, once you um, are there trying to reach the summit, you have to stop at 2 p.m. wherever you're at and make your way back down to the next base camp uh, so that you don't potentially get caught uh, at night or, or in this case, like a, a, a blizzard. But this blizzard hit, it was 5 p.m., diminishing visibility, obliterating the trail, which prevented Hall and two clients from descending back to their base camp, Camp 4. Sometime during the night, one client died and the other went missing and subsequently died, both due to the elements. Hall made radio contact to the camp at 4.30 a.m., letting them know what had happened and that he was not able to use his bottled oxygen because his regulator was too choked up with ice. 
By 9 a.m., Hall had fixed his oxygen mask, but indicated that his frostbitten hands and feet were making it difficult to traverse the fixed ropes. Late in the afternoon, he radioed to base camp, asking them to call his wife on the satellite phone. And during this last communication, he reassured her that he was reasonably comfortable and told her, sleep well, my sweetheart. Don't worry too much. He knew at this point in time that he would not be coming off the mountain. There was absolutely no way he would be able to survive. And sure enough, he died shortly thereafter. His body was found on the 23rd of May by mountaineers from the IMAX expedition. And his body still remains just below the south summit. There was no way he could do anything to help himself. And he understood that. Likewise, man's spiritual predicament is such that as hard as man might try, he is unable to do anything for himself, spiritually speaking, including, maybe even especially, save himself. In fact, he's even unable to have any kind of a connection with God, to know God, to come to God, to have any sort of a relationship with God. He has absolute inability to do so as an unconverted person. It's like man is in this blinding blizzard and can provide himself no oxygen. There is no way he can help himself escape the freezing elements that will bring about frostbite, hypothermia, and certain death. I know I mentioned good news. We've got to go through a little bit more bad news, okay? And we'll get to the good news. So our study of man and the spiritual condition that he is in, it all starts at the beginning. It starts at the beginning, going back to Genesis. It starts in the Garden of Eden with man's fall. That is to say, when man first sinned against his creator God by eating the forbidden fruit and bringing with it God's curse. Namely, that death would now be in the world. Death would be in the world for both animal and man. Neither would live forever. They would one day both physically die. And along with physical death also comes spiritual death. Man will no longer enjoy fellowship with the God, with God, the way that he had prior to his fall when Adam and Eve walked with God spoke with God in the garden. And, and man will, will be made to now live on a cursed earth. And, and this will be the predicament for every human being from that moment all the way, all the way until Christ returns. And, and what we'll call this this, this affecting or, or infecting of the, the whole human race with sin, we'll call it sin inherited. This is our first point, sin inherited. Now, a, a question that we might want to ask is, how? 
How does that happen? How, how is sin inherited? How is it that sin can affect or, again, infect every human being since Adam and Eve? Well, because it is inherited. It is passed on, passed on because of God's curse from person to person going all the way back to the fall in the garden. And our primary passage for this, and you can go ahead and turn there if you like, is Romans 5. We're going to be hitting a lot of different texts today. And, and there will be times where, hey, jump in and, and, and get there. Uh, there's going to be other times where I'm just going to kind of be going through some rather quickly. But um, Romans 5, and looking at chapter 5, verse 12, where Paul compares sin imputed to us through Adam... Imputed meaning it is sin that's attributed to us, it is credited to us, it is ascribed to us with what Christ did by way of imputing his grace to us who have believed. But because of time, I'm only going to give you the highlights of how sin is passed on through the human race. Part of Paul's point is that while Christ's sacrifice was good to make many righteous, Adam's sin also made Many sinners. Look at Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, now who do you suppose that man is? Adam, exactly, and we see that in other places in the text. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, we understand death here in three respects. There is physical death. There is spiritual death, which is to say separation from God. And there is eternal death. Skip down to verse 15 there in Romans 5. And it says there in the midst of Romans 15... By the transgression of the one, again referring to Adam, the many died. And then down in 17, it says that death reigned through the one, Adam. And then in verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And in verse 19, through the one man's disobedience, the... Many were made sinners. Now understand this, friends, that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. There is a difference. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. This is Paul. And he says, among them, meaning he's referencing the Ephesians, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were, here's the key phrase, by nature. Nature meaning your natural disposition. We were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. In other words, we were born with this nature. It's not something we learned. Think about a child. If you have children... You never had to teach your child how to throw a fit or say no, did you? 
They just kind of know that all on their own. They understand that all on their own. So the sin nature now takes us back to Psalm 51 verse 5, which is a psalm of repentance by David for his sin with Bathsheba, where he declares in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He understands that he was was conceived in sin, and from that moment of conception, he is a sinner. In Psalm 58 and verse 3, we see something similar. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Birth we go astray. That's, I mean, you know, it's amazing. And it's amazing because the unbelieving world doesn't get this. This just absolutely makes no sense to them, right? The unbelieving world thinks what? Babies are born innocent. Babies are born just, oh, they're so cute and, you know, so sweet. And, you know, you just want to squeeze their cheeks. And they're just innocents. They're sweeties. They're innocents. And, and they're born righteous. And then they get corrupted as they get older. That's backwards, It's totally backwards. People are born as sinners. Yes, even cute little babies are sinners. So I remember when uh, when we had son Jack, and uh, Jack is uh, Julie's pregnant. You know, we find the pediatrician, and we have Jack. And and one of our early visits with our pediatrician, and this is kind of foreign to me, you know. And um, I don't know. We're talking about babies, and we're talking about you know how cute they are, and this and that. And and he said something to that uh, effect. That, well, you know, babies are, they're born good. They're born good. Jack, Jack is a good boy. He's a good boy. And Julie just looks at him and goes, no, he's not. He's a sinner. (laughs) And you should have seen the guy's face. It just changed like, what? You know, you could imagine him calling, you know, calling the county, you know, CPS or whatever. The apostle John summarizes it well in John 3 and verse 6. When he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit, capital S, is spirit. Flesh is used metaphorically here to describe the natural man, the unredeemed man, the unconverted man, the unsaved man, the totally depraved man it is our flesh that is sin cursed and it's through then the literal seed of man that that sin gets passed on to each and every person of the human race all except one jesus right that's why it was so important that jesus would be born of a virgin born a human being then with out the curse of sin because the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and caused her to become pregnant. No passing on of the seed of man, no passing on of sin. So not only then was he born sinless, but because he's also 100% God, he never sinned. Jesus never sinned. So let's 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 now just ask another question going along with this. How widespread is this problem then of inherited sin, imputed sin? In other words, you know, 
how many are infected? I mean, just a few, a, a bunch, most, majority, or the whole human race? And to what degree are they affected or, again, infected? And that brings us to our second point. Sin for all. Sin for all. We can answer this with a few key scriptures. First, we might consider Romans 3, 10 to 12. It's that classic text that begins, there is none righteous, not even one. But it's quoting Psalm 14. So let's do that. Let's go to Psalm 14. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 14 for a couple minutes here. Psalm 14. It's a psalm of David. It's a psalm that recounts the the folly and the wickedness of men. David writes this in Psalm 14, beginning in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Hey, if you like to mark in your Bible, I, I do. These would be good little phrases. No one. You can underline that, right? There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have, here's another underliner, all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And if you can underline one more thing, here it is. There is no one who does good, not even one. Then back in Romans 3, 23, we also have read, I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 3 and verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. How many are under sin? All. Psalm 53 and verse 1, David says, There is no one who does good. No one. Psalm 143 and verse 2, For in your sight, referring to the Lord's sight, In your sight, Lord, no man living is righteous. How many are righteous? None. None. You starting to kind of get the picture here? We're, we're seeing a theme. So again, how many people? How many people since Adam and Eve are classified as sinners? The correct answer is all of them. All. The problem is universal. Doesn't matter what country you're from or what language you speak or anything like that. It's a universal problem. And just to remind ourselves how, how depraved sin makes us all, going back to Romans 3, if we looked at the rest of that passage, 13 to 18, and it's all quoted from the Old Testament, Paul recounts their throat is an open grave. This is speaking about all of us. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the paths of, 
path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's key, isn't it? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Such were all of us, right? Even an unbeliever like the Roman orator and politician Cicero, or Cicero, was keen enough to declare, man is a disaster, end quote. French apologist Pascal recognized the irony of man being made in the image of God and yet horribly corrupted by sin, saying, quote, what sort of freak then is man? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious. That just means great in size or extent. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sink of doubt and error, glory and refuse of the universe. End quote. Puritan Joseph Aline wrote, Oh, miserable man, what a deformed monster sin has made you. God made you little lower than the angels. Sin has made you little better than the devils. End quote. And all of this again, friends, all of this is true of every human being from the devil worshiper to the atheist to the agnostic. It is true of the criminal and the good person it is true of the morally depraved as well as the morally righteous it is true of any and all persons going back to adam's children on through noah's children and on to us and our children this is the predicament that we all face another predicament that we all face is our third point and that is that sin causes death Sin causes death. In Ephesians 2, we read that classic text, and you were what in your trespasses and sins? Dead. Dead. In verse 5 of Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions. Colossians 2 and verse 13 tells us when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Our flesh hasn't been circumcised yet. We read that in verse 11. In Romans 6, 23, we understand that the wages of sin is death. Yes, sin brings physical death. But what is spoken here is is that of spiritual death. So let me ask you. Can a dead person make themselves alive? Can a dead person make themselves alive? Of course not. Of course not. They're dead. Friends, I've done my fair share of funerals. <laughs> when I first got up to Weaverville, and the, literally the first six months, I, did, I think I did 13 funerals, something like that, some crazy thing. I was like the pastor of death, you know. Nobody wanted to come to the church. They're all afraid. Well, I think we go to that church and we die. <laughs> so I've done my share of, you know, funerals, memorials. I've, I've seen my, my fair share of dead bodies and caskets. And I'll tell you what, friends. Through it all, 
Never once, not once, did I ever see one of those dead bodies come alive during my service. Not once, not once. My secretary up in Weaverville used to joke. She said, oh, if you're ever doing my service, I'm coming back. I'm going to shock you. She's so ornery that she probably would. I mean that in a good way. No, dead people cannot make themselves alive. Nor can the spiritually dead do anything to make themselves spiritually alive alive they're they're zombies they're walking zombies they are alive physically and 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 maybe intellectually but they are dead inside they are dead spiritually they're unable to relate to god in any way shape or form now it's not to say that there aren't people out there in the world that that can do good there are many people that can do good But it's not good to the glory of God, friends. Their good deeds are not any kind of good deed that is pleasing to God because their good deeds are still ultimately done with a selfish motive. They're like, Isaiah says in 64, 6, they're like filthy rags. And and you and I both, we know all kinds of good people. I can think of some very specific good people that would, would do anything for anybody. Give, give somebody the shirt off their backs. Just go, go the extra mile or two to help somebody in need. And you think, man, they're a good person. But yet at the end of the day, it's ultimately still selfish motives in their heart that are causing them to do these good things. You say, well, no, they just want to help people. Yes, because why? It makes them feel good. And yet, we are all in this predicament where we are unable to undead ourselves. We are unable to be good. We are unable to please God. There's something else we need to understand about our predicament. And this is our point number four. Sin and slaves. Sin and slaves. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 Peter speaks of false prophets and the effect that they will have on others, quote, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. In Titus 3 and verse 3, it says that unbelievers are enslaved to various lusts. And pleasures. Jesus said that everyone who commits sin is the uh, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. In John eight thirty four. And speaking of an unbeliever who sins habitually, it's just the ongoing um, pattern of their life. While Paul tells us that the unconverted are slaves to sin in Romans six six. A slave, friends, is under the authority of their master. You could turn, if you like, to 2 Timothy 2.26. 2 Timothy 2.26. Paul here is exhorting Timothy about how the Lord's bondservant, we see bondservant mentioned in verse 24, 
And bondservants, that word doulos, which is really better translated as slave. Slave. So the Lord's slave, he's exhorting him how he must act and behave towards the opposition, which is to say unbelievers. And look at verse 26. He says that they may come to their senses, referring to those unbelievers, that those unbelievers may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will, meaning the will of Satan. In John 8 and verse 44, Jesus is addressing unbelievers when he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Again, friends, that was all of us. All of us were at one time enslaved to Satan. We only wanted to do the will of the devil. And, and in this sense of someone being enslaved to sin and held captive by the devil, it doesn't mean that they're, that they're you know, trying to escape or that they're looking for a way to get free, uh, that, that they hope that they could possibly break free, or that, that they might even try to get away if given the opportunity... They can't, nor are they trying, nor can they even try. Early church father Augustine wrote, quote, A man's free will indeed avails for nothing except to sin if he knows not the way of the truth, end quote. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. End quote. He's enslaved to his sin. He's enslaved to his father, the devil. So if sin is inherited and it affects all of humanity, and it brings enslavement and death to all, what could be said about the heart? What could be said about the heart of man, our hearts, the the seat of man's emotion and will? Well, let's just say things kind of continue from bad to worse here. Bad to worse. Because sin affects the heart. It's our fifth point. Sin affects the heart. Again, go back to the beginning. Genesis 6 and verse 5. This is right before the flood, right? It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that the, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a good one to underline. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. This is when then why God decided to go ahead and judge the earth the way that he did. But here's what's really interesting. You get to the back end of the flood. The flood's over and we go to chapter 8. And they're outside of the ark now and they're offering up sacrifices and to the Lord. And, and it says that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. But then here's what he says with that. 
For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, nothing changed. Nothing changed. And and God knows that. He's acknowledging that this is indeed the case. That though he is judged in that flood, still it didn't do anything to change the evil intent of man's heart. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 is that classic text. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Implied answer, none of us. Proverbs 20 and verse 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. The implied answer there being, no one, no one can say that. The understanding here is that the heart is so defiled, it needs cleansing. Mark 7, 21 to 23 has Jesus telling us, for from within, out of the heart, of men proceed. Oh, listen to this list. It's real lovely. Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and they defile the man. Where again do they proceed from? Right here. The heart. Man's epicenter, right? Romans 1 tells how God gives some sinners over to their lusts as a punishment for their idolatry. In Romans 1, 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And then down in verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Where did those degrading passions come from? Their hearts. In Jeremiah 13, 23, he asks this question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? What's the answer to that? No. Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can't do it. You can't do good if you're accustomed to doing evil. Because the evil is in your heart. The dead person cannot make themselves alive, nor can the dead person change their hearts. That takes us to number six. What about the mind? What about the mind? Sin affects the mind as well. It affects the mind. Returning back to Romans 1 and verse 28, along with God giving them over and the lust of their hearts to impurity in verse 24. Then he says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. It just means a mind that doesn't function. It's not functioning properly. He says to do those things which are not proper. Ephesians 4 and verse 17. Let's go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 4, 17. Ephesians 4, 17. We want to consider here. That unconverted sinners are intellectually unreceptive to spiritual truth. Ephesians 4 and verse 17 tells us 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the, you can underline this, futility of their mind being, another underlying part, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Here we get both the the depravity of both mind and heart. Their mind is futile. They're darkened in their understanding. There's ignorance and hardness of heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So Satan has blinded our minds that we could not see the glory of Christ the gospel, his gospel. Romans 8, verses 5 to 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. Death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile. Toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's pretty airtight, isn't it? It's pretty cut and dried. So can a dead mind become alive to spiritual things? No. Can a dead mind please God, no, it can only be hostile to God. First Corinthians 2 14, Paul says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They are spiritually examined or discerned. He can't do this because again, the natural man is what? dead he's dead titus 1 and verse 15 paul says to the pure all things are pure but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled can a defiled mind undefile itself no Ephesians 2 and verse 3, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And lastly, Colossians 1 21, you were formerly alienated in and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Can a dead person change the course of their mind, spiritually speaking? No, they can't. Now, I wanted to include one last category here, which we're not going to spend a, a, a lot of time on, and that is that sin has consequences. And we won't spend a lot of time on it because, frankly, we've spent a lot of time on the consequences of sin in the previous weeks and months. But sin has consequences, and we could say both physical consequences and eternal consequences. But the reason I, I, I needed to include it here is because we have to understand that there is 
or there are consequences for people's spiritual deadness. We need to remember that each and every human being is given that general revelation of God. That each and every human being has been given by God that understanding in their, in their heart and in their mind that, that, that there is a God, right? That is the one thing he does give us. But what happens is, is men, of course, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They, they squash it down, sweep it under the rug, put it under the floorboards, whatever. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the thing about general revelation, in fact, we see in Romans 1, 2, as well, the fact that God has actually written his law in the hearts of all men. And this general revelation is enough to condemn people, but it's also not enough to save us. That can only come from the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's only the gospel and the power that it wields that can cause them to come alive after being dead. But for those that would remain dead in their sin, then they will suffer and they will suffer the consequences of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord that we know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. And yes, they will suffer in the lake of fire according to Revelation 20 and verse 15. So we're going to start kind of wrapping things up here. <clears throat> and actually, we'll, we'll just kind of lead ourselves into our time of communion. And I'm going to do so with uh, the story of Lazarus. Lazarus. Because it illustrates so well what we're getting at here. Lazarus has two sisters, of course, Mary and Martha. They were all close friends of Jesus. In fact, the text says that Jesus loved them all. Lazarus is sick, as you remember. And he is near death when the sisters send word to Jesus that their brother whom Jesus loves is gravely ill. But Jesus doesn't come right away. And in fact, he, he actually waits two more days until he starts making his way there. And then by the time he does and he's arrived, Lazarus is, of course, dead. And they've already got him wrapped up and they've laid him in the tomb. Martha greets him first, saying, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies those great incredible beautiful words right and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die and then he goes on and he meets mary and along with the mourners they all make their way to the tomb which was a cave with a giant stone lying against it and jesus then said something in verse 39 he said remove the stone Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, unbind him and let him go. Friends, who is it that can cause someone who is dead to become alive? Jesus. Jesus the Christ. A body that's dead has no ability to obey, and yet Lazarus obeys because why? He was given life. And furthermore, not only does Jesus have the power to raise a physically dead body to life, but he has the power to raise the spiritually dead to life. He can raise a spiritually dead body to eternal life. Jesus, through his his gospel, his good news, is the only one who can cause dead people to live. He's the only one that can cause dead people to repent. He's the only one that can cause dead people to have faith. He's the only one that can cause dead people to believe. He's the only one that can cause dead people to trust in the Lord. Ephesians 2 again says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did He do? He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, here's the key, it is the what? Gift of God. It came from God. It's fully and completely from God. Both the grace and the faith come from God. Colossians 2.13, Paul tells us when you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. And John tells us in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13 of his gospel, that those who receive Jesus and believe in his name are those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's important. It can't come from us. It can't come from our flesh. It can't come from our our will. Man, I'm going to will this to happen. I'm going to will this. I was willing myself out there on the baseball diamond there. I'm going to catch this. I'm going to kill my body. And we can do those kinds of things, right? But we can't will ourselves to be alive after being dead. John 5.21. For just as the father raises the dead. And gives them life. Even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. John 6.44. No one can come to me. Unless the father who sent me draws him. And then in verse 65. And he was saying. This is Jesus. For this reason I have said to you. That no one can come to me. Unless it has been granted him. From the father. Chapter 8 verse 36. So if the son makes you free you will be free indeed who's behind all of that god is jesus is 
How much of that are we doing? None of it. Acts 3.16 speaks of the faith which comes through him, capital H. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.29 tells us belief is granted by God. And 2 Peter 1.1, Peter writes, to those who have received a faith. If you've received a faith, that faith had to be given. Who was it given by? God. All of these by God through His Son. In summary, Houston, We have a problem. We have a big, big, ugly, nasty problem. We have a problem because we have all inherited the sin nature. We have a problem because we are in a tremendous predicament due to the fact that we are sinners. All of us through and through. We have a problem because we are dead in our sins We have a problem because our hearts are fully and completely sinful. Our minds are are sin-cursed against a righteous and holy God. And, And our sin bears with it consequences. Consequences of death and separation from God and eternal punishment. And this is the same for every human being that has ever lived or will live and try as hard as we 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 might we have absolutely zero no ability to come to god on our own or to save ourselves nobody nobody in the history of the world has ever been able to do so and no one in the future History will ever be able to do so. It is an impossibility because again, we are dead. Dead. Totally, completely depraved. Nothing spiritually good in us. And dead men cannot make themselves alive. It can't happen. But God, right? But God, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.